Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast. Today we are sharing a replay of an interview that Krista did on the Brave Parenting Podcast. You will hear Krista talk about why she thinks every Christian should have some basic understanding of theology and what she sees as the key obstacle to passing the faith on to the next generation. And now, here are our sisters at Brave Parenting. Krista, what a joy and privilege it is to have you on the Brave Parenting Podcast. For those who don't know you, go ahead and tell everybody a little about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Yeah, I'm glad to be here and have this conversation with you. Uh, I'm a wife of 30 years. It's hard to imagine. Like I've been with the same guy a very long time when you start getting three decades. That's that's a lot of lot of life's ups and downs. And um super glad for that. My husband Bob uh definitely is one of my partners in ministry. I'm a mom to two young adult children, ages 20 and 24. I have been working as a theologian for about 30 years now. And uh, I went to seminary before the internet. <laughs> That's how <laughs> old I am. Uh, I have a website and YouTube channel um, called Theology Mom. And that is where I am everywhere is Theology Mom. And I specialize in theological issues related to the doctrine of creation. I worked for 20 years in science apologetics, but more recently I've come to specialize in issues related to ethnicity, justice, and cultural apologetics. I host a weekly podcast offering theological commentary on social issues. Well, so as the noted theology mom, Let's talk about theology. I think that's a great place to start. Sure. So yeah. how do you define theology and why is the theology or the study of theology important for every Christian, but especially for parents who are trying to raise and disciple their kids right now? Yeah, well, just very basically, very broadly, uh, the word theology comes from Greek and it comes from two words, theos, which means God, and logos which means like study of, it's where we get the word logic. Um, in John chapter one, it calls Jesus the logos. And it is basically just thinking thoughts about God. And in that way, I think that loosely speaking, very loosely speaking, everyone's a theologian to some degree. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is are we having accurate thoughts about God? Because um, everybody has thoughts, feelings, and opinions about God, his existence, or his non-existence, depending on their worldview. And so the, really the question that we as Christians need to ask ourselves is, am I having accurate thoughts about God? Because all of us have been created to worship and to reflect on creation and who the creator is. Uh, just as a quick personal story to illustrate this, um, one of the pivotal moments in my life was a college essay that my professor at Biola University asked us to write my senior year in, in a Bible class. And the essay was, we had to answer the question, what would the world be like if my dad was made God for a day. 
And when I heard the assignment, it was like lightning went through my whole body because I, as a child who had been raised by a single mom, had virtually no to very little contact with my father growing up. I had thoughts and opinions that I had shaped about the world and God's place in it based on who my own earthly father is. And I never realized it, that I kind of perceived God to be absentee and capricious and emotionally disconnected, uninterested in my life. Well, that was almost a mirror reflection of my situation with my earthly father. And it was in that moment in writing that essay that I realized I had an idolatrous view of God. I had an inaccurate view of God. I was worshiping a God of my own making. And I had to repent from believing that about the creator of the universe and about my savior. And that started my quest into enrolling in seminary the next year um, in graduate school so that I could get a more accurate understanding of who God truly is. And so in that way, we are all theologians. And some of us may have idolatrous views about God. We may have inaccurate understandings of who he is and and, and um, even inaccurate understanding of the scriptures. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of my slant on every person, a theologian. Yeah. And so when you think about that in the context of raising and disciple kids, that's really important because as you said, everybody is a theologian. We all have thoughts about God. So how we, uh, how our own thoughts about God, how we portray that in front of our children, of course, is going to impact their own thoughts about God. And I think that we can probably broadly say based on, I think the statistic is like 4% for millennials, 2% for Gen Z have that biblical worldview. Yeah. That chances are a lot of us, a lot of young people, especially just have inaccurate or wrong or idolatrous, as you said, thoughts about God. And that's where the benefit of, of studying theology in the sense of studying God's word and understanding doctrine can really come into play. Yeah. And those numbers that you're saying there are from George Barna and his work out of Arizona Christian University. So if people want to go look those up, it's his worldview inventory and uh, they're powerful and sad numbers. And I think one of the critical things to um, thinking about those numbers, and this directly ties into our conversation today, is that what he's measuring is not people who just call themselves a Christian. What he's measuring are the percentages of people that have what he calls an integrated Christian worldview. And this is where we don't just call ourselves a Christian or go to church two or three times a month. An integrated Christian worldview, it comes from a person who understands that Christ reigns over all, that Christ reigns over every area of our life. And that we want to bring everything captive, our thought life, our emotions, and our behaviors under the rule and reign of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where media is our is kind of like the enemy right now, <laughs> because it can so take us away. So 
How would you say that theology relates to media? So we use technology and media right now. We're using it for our both of our ministries. But when you think your thoughts about God, how do you see like online media content even impacting people's theological understandings, their worldview? Yeah, and I I call it the okay first of all let's there's kind of a couple questions embedded there what you what you asked so if i forget something <laughs> you know just circle back but the first thing is kind of how theology of media um you know when i think about that we, we have to understand is that media is a technology and a t- most technologies are really morally neutral um so we're going to start with a more ubiquitous technology in that of uh, a scalpel. Now, a scalpel in the hands of a skilled doctor is a wonderful life-saving instrument, but a scalpel in the hands of a serial c- killer is going to have quite a different outcome. So the technology itself may or may not be intrinsically problematic, um, but there are always trade-offs for adopting any technology. And this is where I think that we need to do far more reflection as Christians and as Christian parents is how am I, what is the trade-offs that I'm making by bringing this technology into my home? And this was, now, now understand that my husband and I both started out working in the entertainment business. We have a background in filmmaking. That was how we met, was in film school. And so we, of all people, are are people who have been engaged in media production. And like you said, I use media in my ministry. But anytime we are bringing a technology into our home, we have to kind of go through a Pros and cons, if you will. Let me let me use another example here of a stethoscope. Now, a stethoscope is a tool that a doctor can use to make a diagnosis. It's an instrument that can help him gather data. But um, Neil Postman does a lot of work in this area. He's a philosopher um, doing work in the area of technology. And um, I don't believe he's a Christian, but... Um, he has a lot of interesting ideas and he makes the the comment that before the stethoscope doctors would be relegated to really knowing their patients they had to ask them a lot of diagnostic questions but once the stethoscope came in they could just substitute some of those questions for the technology and over time as we bring more and more technology into our homes or into our doctor's offices, there can be less and less engagement with us as people and as patients. And so this is what I see as sort of analogous to the home, is we have to be careful what technology we bring into our homes. What are the trade-offs that I am making as a result of bringing this technology into my home? Uh, because those become pretty apparent. You might give your kid an iPhone for Christmas and start noticing by the next day, I have made some trade-offs here uh, in terms of relationship and communication most immediately. 
I what you just said reminds me of a quote from I believe it's his name is he's a professor uh, I think it's David T Gordon he said it way back in 2011 and he said uh, reformed Christians as media became more and more accessible they didn't contemplate the trade off and he said they were more concerned with their content than they were with contemplating whether or not it would drive conversation out of their home. And yes. I've used that quote a lot in our speaking events because he just says it so very plainly. And that's exactly what you're talking about right now is we're not contemplating the trade-off when we invite this technology into our home. So from your experience then, how important and honestly, how possible is it for parents to teach the utility aspect of smartphones and social medias you know, without allowing their kids to be kind of like swept away by the culture? And by the content that's in the culture, I mean, a lot of young people are rooting their identity in their content right now. Yeah, that's such an important question. And I'm going to say some things that are not popular. Go okay. ahead. So We, don't, we say um, a lot of unpopular things. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say some things that people might write into you about, because uh, I get the letters too. And <laughs> I, I am a skeptic that a child, a preteen, an early teen can really make that kind of con content discernment. Um, let's, let's just be honest. Okay. We're going to have some real talk right now. This is a loaded gun. Mm -hmm. That's what this is. This is unfettered access to content that will kill your soul. And if you as a parent, and it could even give you content to tell you how to kill yourself. Yes. This, yep. this, is, this is what this is. Most adults cannot even navigate using this technology in a way that doesn't harm their own soul. If you don't believe me, just go on Google and start looking for the psychological impacts of smartphones, particularly on women and their emotional well-being, okay? So I don't think I'm making a controversial statement for those who are willing to look into it. Um, but this is the thing, is that why do we think, why do we have this romantic sensation that our children can handle a loaded gun in their hands. Why do we think this? We don't leave, we, we, we have, you know, I, we put guns in safes for a reason. And, and a, a, a gun is another form of a technology where, you know, the human heart it, it is a factor in all of that. And this is, in my opinion, a loaded gun. I would not just indiscriminately give that to a child and expect that they can navigate the soul-polluting, toxic content and know, well, here's a good stream to go down and here's not a good stream to go down. And we as Christians of all the people on the planet ought to understand that theologically we are wicked we have a sin problem 
and that the devil is real and that there is an invitation to deception that is on the table at all times. And our children are not exempt from that. So here's the story of how the letters I get at the ministry year over year. My child, somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15, started in, started um, interacting with YouTube or TikTok or some other social media platform, and they started spending a lot of alone time in their room, and they have unfettered access to a computer in their room or their cell phone or their iPad or whatever. And then yada, 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 six months, nine months later, my child is saying they no longer believe in God or now they identify as non-binary. This is the story that happens over and over and over again. And my, my transparent thought about this is, and this surprises you? Why? Because if we're Christians, we ought to know that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Amen. We, we, we ought to know that if we've read the Bible. We ought to understand that part of our role as parents is to assume my child is going to make a lot of foolish decisions. The reason I am here is to um, help make sure that those foolish decisions potentially don't have permanent impact on their life, but they're still learning from them. <laughs> and I'm not shielding them from all the consequences. And so when a child has unfettered access to a loaded gun, I am not optimistic that they will know how to use it. So I am a skeptic of the position that, and, and I know I get the letters, not my child, my child would never do this. My child, I don't know, they have super discernment. And then this parent will write to me six months later, what do I do now? I found out my child's looking at porn. Well, you know, I, it's hard. This is hard, but, but we have to weigh out what am I sacrificing in bringing this technology into my home? But people are hesitant to have a real conversation about that. They want to believe their child wouldn't do that. They would know better or that there's a necessity for it. I need this technology because I need to be able to communicate with my, with my child. And I just, yeah, we could talk about all the reasons, but yeah. th that's, that's my general thought about that. Well, what you just said just reminds me, it's the doctrine of theology that came out last fall. I think the number one doctrine being lost in the church right now is the belief in original sin. So if you don't believe your child is has original sin, then of course you would give them that loaded gun because yeah. you're 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 going to act out your beliefs. That's just what we do as humans. We act out what we believe. And yeah. And as a counselor, counseling young college girls right now who've got a porn addiction that they started when they were 8 years old, it's kind of not that this isn't, you know, all commons are problem to man, as Corinthians would tell us, but um, now instead of having a 30-year-old woman come into your counseling room that's had an eight-year or 10-year-long addiction to pornography, it's an 18-year-old. And that is, 
Oh, it's yeah. heartbreaking is what it is. It just gut-wrenchingly heartbreaking is what it is. So what's interesting is as an adoptive mom, I was different than everybody else because I was like, oh, my kid's going to do that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I know the background, you know, and the trauma that my kids have faced. Yeah. And I knew. So everybody else was like, oh, no, 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 not my kid. And I thought, oh, yes, yes, my kid's going to fall into every single trap. I know that. And so we put so many hard blocks to, of course, you know, we were the absolute worst parents on the entire planet. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, we see the fruit. And this is what we try and convey to, you know, the brave parents who listen and who, you know, hear our content is there is so much extra value that you don't realize that they're missing, such as that, that communication, that if you don't have a phone in the lunchroom that you can access because your parents have put it in downtime during high school, guess what? People who really need to talk to someone face-to-face, soul-to-soul, they're going to come to you and they're going to talk to you and you're going to be like this beloved friend because you don't have social media to go blast the gossip all around and you're just going to be you know, happy to have someone to talk to. So I would hear those kind of stories from my kids later. And we just, as parents, just think, oh, no, they don't need that. Yeah, but they, I, they do. I, they do. And I think that we have to remember how God has created us to be. I, I don't believe he has created our brains to primarily interact with screens. For tens of thousands of years, we've been interacting face-to-face, you know, and having meaningful communication. I think that there's a reason why our suicide rates are going up. I think there's a reason why our depression and anxiety rates are going up. And I think that people long for meaningful communication. And I fall into this trap too. I remember my previous job, you know, um, before smartphones, we would sit around before a meeting and just chit chat, like, how's your mom? How's, you know, how's her cancer treatments? What's happening with your kids? How old are they now? And we would just have all the little small talk while we were waiting for the meeting to start. Once smartphones came into the workplace, we would just all be on our smartphones in our own little bubbles waiting for the meeting to start. And it's those little moments that get snatched away. And those little moments in our kids' lives and in our family lives, those little things add up. You know, uh, that's what makes a childhood truly wonderful is all of those little moments. And that's really what our kids are longing for, even if they can't articulate it. Even if they can't say, mom, this is really what I'm, what I'm wanting is, is your attention. Right. We always say, you know, the scripture from Matthew, who uh, would give his son when he asked for bread, give him a stone. Why yeah. would you, why would you do that? And I think that that's what's happening. They want communication. They want connection. They want relationship. And right now they're just convinced that it comes through the phone. And so we just say, yeah, yeah us too. And we also, I would also contribute to what you had said about depression, anxiety, suicide rate, all of that, you know, as our kids are growing up, they are not getting our eyes as parents because our eyes are on our own devices. Exactly. So neglect, you know, from a screen is the same. I actually read in one study that the brain scans of children from foster care look similar to kids who are on screens. And as a parent of, you know, foster adopted kids, I was like, um, neglect is neglect. 
that's what that told me, you know, whether you're neglected because your parents aren't around at all, maybe because they're on drugs or whatever, or you're just neglected because your parents just left you on a screen or left you to do nothing while they look at their screen. And that's, and it's so sad. And so, so getting back to just some practical wisdom we can apply, um, you know, because we do know there's so many parents out there who just, they don't have that confident hope that scripture is sufficient, that when it tells us to guard our hearts, that we do so because it's, you know, all of our behavior comes from that. And when it tells us to endure, when it tells us to discipline, when it calls us to holiness, all of that, they don't have that foundation to to build their parenting and their discipleship on. So how do you think, because we think like obviously teaching biblical doctrine is kind of a basis that we've all lost. What would you say about teaching biblical doctrine, you know, as a family, such as the sufficient, sufficiency of scripture, um, what it can teach us and how to engage with media and technology? Yeah, this is so important. Um, one of my main um, ministry goals is to inspire parents to really disciple their children, to take the leadership in their theological and biblical education. And um, I have a t-shirt in as part of my ministry that says, I don't co-parent with the government. We love and, that one. <laughs> you know, I and I also really don't co-parent with my youth pastor. Like my youth pastor, I see as an adjunct to what I do as a parent, but my husband and I are the leaders in our children's education when it comes to, particularly when it comes to the faith. And this is vital. I cannot emphasize this enough. Um, And it has to focus on Bible reading, it, it first and foremost. And so I really encourage parents to help their children start a daily Bible reading habit from a very young age. And it, just as we teach our children to brush their teeth every day and put on clean clothes, if the Lord agrees, you know, we've got to have some some basic hygiene with these children. We used to have a little shower schedule in the bathroom to remind people when to, when to shower. Uh, we've got to help our children develop a daily Bible habit because it will, I, I have some news, it will not magically happen when they turn 18. Like that's actually not how that works. Um, so we've we've got to help them do it. And so the way that my husband and I have done that with our own children was we read one chapter a day together as a family and discuss it for um, we basically block 30 minutes and that cha- that time changes depending on life and scheduling. But, um, when the kids were in high school, it was a lot more challenging. We had to get up a little bit earlier, but it's a lot easier to get up earlier. And we all do it together as a family. There's a lot more accountability than if I'm just trying to do it, you know, by myself. And so de- helping our children develop that daily rhythm And in the beginning, we started this when our kids were teenagers and, um, you know, that's not, I love the name of your podcast, Brave Parenting. We're going to have to have some brave parenting of teenager eye rolling, teenager uh, pushback. But I will tell you the, the, the developing the daily Bible reading habit has a cumulative effect that I have seen time and time and time again. Um, 
and we would just read one chapter a day and discuss it as a family and have some quick prayer requests at the end. And then we all went on with our day and teaching our children to, to do that together has been so changing for our family. And I think it really gave our kids an anchor to hold on to that they that something inside of them knew that there would be this time during the day where questions were welcomed. There was a timeout for their faith questions. They we could um, have those conversations. You've got to have some kind of a baseline with your family to bring that rhythm of education. No matter if your kids are going to public school private school, homeschooling, whatever, that there is this baseline of biblical literacy that we're going to walk people through. And I think that just has to, it has to start there with daily Bible reading. I love that you shared your experience with the listeners because I think a lot of people think, well, my kids are teens. It's too late. Mm -hmm. Like they, they don't want to put in the effort. They don't want to, they don't want to sit and they don't want to see the eye rolls and the pushback and and whatnot. And what I always encourage parents is this really isn't about your kids. It's about your act of worship to your God. He gave you these kids to mm-hmm. steward and to disciple. And this is an act of worship for him and him alone, truly. Um, because a lot of times as parents, we put our kids in place of God. You know, we worship their sports, you know, abilities and we want to live through their straight A's and we, and so then when our kids fail us or they don't live up to our expectations and standards, we're not really sure what to do with them anymore because they've kind of replaced God in that way. And I just love that there's never too late of a day to start this, to start worshiping God as a family. Um, And I just, I think that's going to be so powerful for our listeners to hear that. It's true. And really prioritizing that over entertainment, because entertainment just seeps into where it becomes your daily routine. Yeah. You know, I know I I listen to podcasts in the morning when I'm getting ready. That's my daily routine. I do, you know, engage in some media, but, you know, am I doing God's word first? Am I, what am I prioritizing? And that's, that's, it's those habits that we can really instill and teach to our kids. So, yeah, all right. And I, I always think too, another thing is that I think about how do I hope that my grandchildren will be parented mm-hmm. by these people <laughs> that I'm trying to raise, you know, and, it, and I'm thinking about like, no, I want my kids to be able to pass on the faith to my grandchildren. I don't want to grow up, you know, and see them grow up without that. But what am I going to do to instill that and to create in my own children an experience that they will have to draw on to parent my grandchildren. And that has inspired me a lot in my own parenting journey. Yeah. I have a five-year-old granddaughter. My oldest uh, has as one child. And so it was funny, funny little story to add to this is, of course, we're very much like keep her off screens, please, please, please. And we took her to SeaWorld on Friday and she's telling a story from the backseat of the car and she's describing something and she's going on and on. And and she said something, well, I learned from YouTube. And I said, you learned that from YouTube? Like a media, like I'm, I'm starting to judge. And she says, no, you too, meaning like, like my husband and I. And I was like, oh, yes, yes, this is good. But already, you know, <laughs> it's because I'm like, please don't be learning from YouTube at five, you know. 
Um, but with that, you know, there's social media, hmm, the bane of our existence, right? Um, it's just teeming with just social contagions that destroy a young person's worth, destroy their worldview. And so, I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't just kind of talk about this. What would you say is like the most threatening ideology that permeates social media? It's causing everyone to walk away from their faith or deconstruct their faith into something progressive, you know, something new age. Yeah, I think the I think the biggest threat, to be honest, right now is progressive Christianity. Um, and that's a pretty big umbrella, but um, you know, the TikTok personalities similar to what Brandon Robertson does. He's a he he um is a homosexual. He he claims that he's a he's a minister. Um, I think he graduated from Moody Bible College uh, back in the day before he became progressive. But his TikTok videos are really geared toward people like my children's age, and they're they're very effective. And he is a good communicator. And I think that these kinds of TikTok theologians who make these little one minute kind of deconstructed videos that have just enough Bible references in them that it makes the kid think that the person is actually talking about the Bible and not just a crazy idea. I, I think that that to, to me is some of the most dangerous content out there, especially for kids that are growing up in a Christian home or a Christian adjacent home. Um, they have just enough familiarity with the Bible to when they hear somebody talking about the Bible from a different kind of through a different lens, um, it can be very confusing. And this really brings me back to my previous point about biblical literacy. I think the biggest threat to historic Christianity in general is biblical literacy or illiteracy. Right. Um, because even in quote unquote, Bible believing churches where they'll put Bible verses up on the screens each week. People don't have physical Bibles anymore. This deeply concerns me that we are accessing the Bible primarily on a screen. And so I, I want to encourage parents to force your child to have to use a physical Bible, teach them if they're not in Awana, you know, teach them the books of the Bible so they can find their way around, teach them chapters and verses, have them open it, encourage them to write in it and make it their own because um, this is becoming a lost skill. And so what's happening, if, if the child is primarily interacting with scripture through screens, I'm here to tell you some bad news. They do not actually understand the Bible because they probably haven't read enough of it to understand the story arc and to understand how all the pieces in the Bible tell the overall story of the Bible. And so that to me is the biggest remedy for these TikTok preachers is we have to 
get our kids actually reading the Bible, because what most people these days are deconstructing away from is actually not historic Christianity. They think they are, but they were never, they never understood historic Christianity to begin with. They've had some adjacent interactions with scriptures, decontextualized via screens, a verse here, a verse here, and they, they, they don't actually understand the faith. And most people who take my theology classes are millennial parents. And they have grown up in the megachurch generation. And I can tell you that 90% or more of the students who take my classes have never learned any of the basic concepts that I teach in my classes. They're like, this is the first time I've ever even heard of the omniscience of God, or this is the first time I've ever even heard about, you know, justification more than just a couple of sentences. And so millennial parents who have grown up in, in theological poverty are now trying to parent their children from that place, and they are finding themselves in a very difficult situation because they might have a heart to disciple their kids, but they don't even, they haven't been discipled enough and they've been discipled by social media more than the scriptures. And so they're, they're struggling to figure out how to pass on the faith to their children. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate assessment of exactly what's happening when you said that kind of that theological poverty I mean, I'm a, I'm a Gen X, so, but even grow, you know, I didn't, I grew up in the Catholic church, um, but even at being a Christian and what I would say, a Bible studying, great churches, small groups, trying to dig deep, dig deep. When I started my um, master's classes in biblical theology, I was blown away at how much I did not know. And I think to myself, everybody needs to know this. <laughs> everybody needs this type of theological training. That's why I love your classes, what you offer, because it's so accessible for everybody. Because not everybody can go register and right. get a master's degree, but the, the the training is out there. The the wisdom is out there. It's all accessible if, and this is what we want to do, is bring those resources to people, because that is exactly what we're finding too. Their heart might be in the right place, but they're, they don't have that foundation. They don't have the basis. And we just talked to Elizabeth Urbanowitz was on our podcast last week. And that's another great way, especially when your kids are young, millennials mm -hmm. having kids is learn the worldview right alongside them. Maybe exactly because it, it's no longer, it's no longer caught anymore. You don't get a biblical worldview just from the, the culture that you're surrounded in as you did in maybe the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. Now it's just, you have to teach it. Yep. You, you have to. Krista, is that one of your greatest concerns for the future of the church, like for the youngest generation, as it continues that they're just, you know, they're consuming the false ideologies and then just coming in and then, but there's no Bible to, to counteract. Like, it's just that baton of faith, like you said, it's just not being, is that your biggest concern for the future of the church? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's Bible interpretation. It's what we call in seminary hermeneutics. Yeah. Um, in fact, hermeneutics, the classes have been cut from many seminary programs. Like it used to just be standard um, in the master divinity program and you had to take hermeneutics classes. And that is often like one of the first classes to go. 
And, you know, we've got to trim it down from, you know, this many units to this many units to make it more accessible and all of this. And I have deep concerns about the state of hermeneutics at the seminary level. I've done a couple of podcasts about that, of some shifts that I'm seeing and that in our pulpits, we're going to start seeing the fruit of that, um, particularly in the next three to five years, as young seminary graduates are going to start filling our pulpits. Um, because what's happening is that, and I, I, I'm going to continue pounding this drum on my podcast because I think it is such a big problem. Um, people see oh, I'm in a Bible-believing church. My church has Bible verses on the screen every week. Um, they actually might not be a Bible-believing church, even if they are talking about the Bible, projecting Bible verses, because what's happening is people do not understand in context what those verses actually mean. I just saw a thing yesterday on Facebook where somebody was arguing that the true meaning of Christian baptism is that we become more and more like God. I was like, okay, depending on how you interpret that claim, maybe I could see that, you know, but then they went on to say, and so that means that to become more and more like God means that I will become more and more non-binary. So a trans person is actually closer to who God is than uh, a, a, a strict male or female. And I'm like, okay, now we're in the ditch. But <laughs> the, the, but this is the thing is that they're trying to make a theological argument. Mm -hmm. And the person that I was interacting in the post about was like, how do I respond to this? And I said, this is, this is like a very good example of what I am seeing a lot on social media is people make arguments that are very theological. They're just incorrect the theology, but people don't know enough about the Bible to even respond. And then I think this is how they, they get sucked into it. And so I think biblical literacy um, is the antidote to a lot of these progressive ideas, but um, we're, like you said, we're going to have to be intentional about educating ourselves. Um, and that's why, quite frankly, I offer classes through my website on Bible interpretation and theology, because I'm giving people the basics to help inoculate them from these errors so that they can have something to pass on to their children. And I think it's a common misconception that kids don't want to know that, that they don't care oh, about theology or that do. they do. After I took my hermeneutics class, which was one of the first classes I took in my master's program, I was like, this is incredible. I've got mm -hmm. to give it to my high school students that I lead. I have about 30 girls in a high school group. So over summer, I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to study hermeneutics. I told them what the word was. I had a great turnout. This was probably between sophomore and junior year. So we're talking yeah. like, you know, 16 year olds. They loved it. They love so, it. They, yeah. yeah, they thrive and just grow yeah. and come alive when they yeah. when they know how to interpret. I mean, they still will look at me if someone, if the pastor, the youth pastor, whoever's speaking, will say something about we have to look at context. They'll be like, "Yes, yes, Miss Kelly," <laughs> and they can do it. I mean, I yeah. I've seen my students. I've taught 
Bible interpretation to people from ages eight to 80 and they're, they can do it. And I, my favorite class I've ever done was the class I did for middle schoolers and on Bible interpretation. And I led them through all the steps and we studied all these passages together. And then at the end, I had them do little like 10 minute sermons for each other and they did great and they can do it. And this is how you inoculate your child against foolish theology is once they understand, oh, I can look in the passage, I can read before and after in the context, and I can begin to decipher. And a lot of what I do is when I teach is I play sermon clips and I have students um, analyze the sermon clips. Is this is the sermon faithful to the scripture? That's when it really starts clicking for them. Mm, and they're like, good. they're like, oh no, that's not actually what this is about. And it turns them from a passive listener into an active listener when they hear their own minister teaching from the pulpit then or on TikTok or wherever. I think I just got a new teaching tactic to put yeah, in my back that's pocket. A great one. Like mm-hmm. that's pretty fantastic. <laughs> We're working with our high school girls on hermeneutics. We're using Grasping God's Word right now. And uh, it's been fantastic. They've loved it. And I think it's because teenagers, they can smell hypocrisy from a mile away. And that's the one thing they don't want to be is a hypocrite. So capital T truth is just like, it's like a Thanksgiving feast for them, to Mm -hmm. be quite honest. Like, yeah. Okay. So I want to like shift a little bit. And okay, so I know, Kelly and I know that you've been fairly outspoken about Christians not parenting with the government or not co-parenting yeah. with the government, right? Um, we love the t-shirt, Family 210 clothing, and you guys need to go get a t-shirt. Um, but you've also been kind of outspoken and promoting like homeschool and private Christian education as well. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about your passion there. And has media and screen time and any of that influenced that passion? You're very observant. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so those are kind of two separate issues, but interconnected. Um, yeah, I am very passionate about, again, this is the theme of parents being the leaders in their children's lives. And while, you know, I think their first priority is definitely spiritual discipleship. I think that that also extends into their regular education. Now that's not to say that the parent has to do all of the education, but I think that ultimately they are responsible before the Lord about it. And, um, you know, um, I have some controversial positions about it and I do uh, encourage Christian parents to do their homework about their local public school district to understand that, Um, Public education is not the same as when we were kids. It's a different environment to educate themselves. I've done a lot of content on things like comprehensive sexuality education, which is not the same thing as sex ed in the 80s and 90s. And so I I am an advocate, first and foremost, of um, educating yourself. Go look up in your public school district the word equity um, and just search it right on your school district's website, see what their equity plan is and everything that's falling under that. And I have content about all of those things on on my channel. And um, I am in most cases an advocate for every Christian family who wants a different option 
and to be able to pull their child out of public school, there should be a way for them to do that. That's my ultimate goal. And I really am hoping that pastors will catch a vision for how to harness our churches, which I think is an amazing resource, our local churches. What's important is that there's just a way and and that whatever way we're going to help the families in our local churches to be able to have more education options, it needs to be able to be viable for single parents, low-income parents, and to understand that they they have challenges with homeschooling if you're a single parent. Um, and so we need to be very, very creative. Uh, and I would like to see more churches get a vision for helping Christian families and to support them so that we're not just relegating Christian children to government schools, which are, in my candid opinion, in many cases, not all, but many are, have a focused agenda on indoctrinating our children against our worldview. And if you don't believe me, just go on your district website, type in the word equity, and you can see what their worldview truly is. And I'm not, um, and let me say a word here about Christians who work in government schools. I bless you. Um, I hope you have a community in your life that's praying for you and supporting you and cheering you on. If God has called you to be a missionary in the government school system, I bless you. And this is not a conversation about you. This is a discussion about how do we make sure that our children do not become collateral damage to what is the obvious agenda of the NEA and UNESCO and International Planned Parenthood, which are behind um, comprehensive sexuality education. And it's not a conspiracy theory. You can just go Google it. If you just go look, you will, you will see that that's what is happening. So that that's kind of what my passion is um, along those lines. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And this has just been a super encouraging and just, I think, very practical conversation on how we as parents can just make these little changes, um, reading the Bible together as our family, just being brave, staying strong, knowing we're sinners. <laughs> Folly yeah. is bound up in our child's heart. And we really do have to be wise and very intentional. We have to really think through and not act on our flesh and the desires of just making our kids happy in the moment. So what final words of encouragement or exhortation, Krista, would you offer parents who are just really, you know, in the thick of it, they're in the mire right now and struggling to keep their eyes on Jesus and off of media, off of entertainment, off of their yeah. screen? Yeah, I, I guess my final words would be, um, be brave. I, I mean, again, I love the, yes. the name of your podcast because uh, you're going to have to be strong and courageous. You're going to have to be uh, bigger than your child's eye rolling. Um, you're going to have to withstand that. And I think that I have grown in my appreciation for this point 
over the last few years as my best friend is uh, Monique Dusan. She's the, the president of the Center for Biblical Unity. And she's also an African-American woman and grew up in um, South Central Los Angeles, which back when she was a child was 100% black. She said the only white people she ever interacted with were doctors and watching her grandmother's soap operas. And um, uh, she just grew up in a black community. And she said, black, black parents are, uh, she noticed after living with us for five years, you know, and, and my husband and I are, are both white and, and most of our friends are all white. And she says, what I've noticed about you guys and, and all of your friends, she says, white people parent very differently than black people. She says, it is a different sensibility. She says, white people are sort of low key afraid of their kids. <laughs> She's like, white people are like, they want to be their kids' friends. They want their kids to like them. So black people don't think like that. Black people, they, she said, my mother always made it very clear to me, um, you know, that she was not my friend and she didn't care how I felt about it. She didn't care how I felt about much of anything. And, you know, that I was not going to shame her in public. I was not going to act up and I was not going to do this or that. And that her mother parented her from a very, from a position of strength. And I, this is very interesting. I said, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if, you, you know, is, is this a cultural thing um, that there is these particular differences. And as I've interacted with many of Monique's friends who are all African-American, I will say there are some definite cultural differences and that uh, I've learned how to be a braver parent by interacting with parents from other cultural contexts. And there are other ways of doing it. And I've come to appreciate that. And I think that that has impacted how I interact with my own children and some fortitude that I have in myself, some some confidence. And so um, I think that the idea of brave parenting is an important idea. It is an important idea because it is one that um, we need to talk more about of what that looks like um, for us. And so that would be my best advice is you're, you're going to have to, you know, in some regard, know that you're parenting against the stream and that you're going to probably have to parent your child and disciple them to know that they will not fit in. Like if fitting in is your greatest goal, that's not happening here. We will not be the family that fits in. We're not going to be the family that does all the things, that goes to all the movie premieres, that goes to the certain concerts. We're not going to be that family, but we're going to be in it together. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we're going to find two or three other families that are a little square like us, and we're going to build some community. And your kid just has to know that that's, that's how it's going to roll here. And you're going to have to be okay with that. I love those final words. I I really do. I love them. I, I think a lot of parents just want Christianity to be popular. So it feels comfortable for them, but it's never going to be popular and it's never going to feel really comfortable because 
it's going against our flesh nature and we're trying to be sanctified and we're Jesus says, you know, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. And I think that's just something that we need to kind of like settle down in and to be okay with. Um, so I I love those final words, but you offer so many fantastic resources. I don't think I could name them all <laughs> because you're involved in so much. So if our listeners would like to find you, where yeah. could they find you? What what are you offering? And is there anything that's kind of like exciting that could be coming in the future that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So most of my content is at theologymom.com. That's my website. I also have a YouTube channel with about 400 videos on it. I'm posting there weekly uh, at uh, my channel's Theology Mom, or as my mother likes to say, I have 400 opinions on, on, my, on my channel. Uh <laughs> And um, also they could see our work uh, jointly between Monique Dusan and myself at the Center for Biblical Unity, where we do conversations related to ethnicity and justice from a biblical worldview perspective. We run book clubs, we have classes, we um, have a curriculum for small groups related to ethnic unity in the local church. But what is new and exciting is that our book is going to be coming out very soon uh, with that has a bit of our story together of Monique and I. Uh, she came out of the critical race theory, social justice framework, and um, the just the story of our very unlikely friendship. <laughs> and um, we're from different generations, different cultural backgrounds different ethnicities. We had everything working against us, and yet somehow the Lord made a way. And so we talk about our journey and then the theology of ethnic unity in the local church. The book is going to be called Walking in Unity, and it'll be coming out through Salem Books in February. Awesome. That's exciting. I'm, I look forward to that because I always wonder when I first started watching and listening, I was like, how did these two come together? Yeah, we get that question a lot. I'm sure you do. I'm sure. So this will be a great book. Well, awesome. Krista, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for what you do for the body of Christ, dedicating your time, your ministry to just putting such fantastic, grounded and in, in truth content out there. So we appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.